All right, we'll be talking about repentance tonight and its importance to what is at stake at the gospel and what it means. It is central to the message of the gospel. And we're going to start here by showing some of the key people, quote unquote, if you will, who their message was repentance. And we don't have to go very far into the gospel according to John, which is where we have been to find our first example. If you remember John the Baptist, what was his message? We know that we've been in John, but we're going to take this text out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, 1 through 2. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the forerunner for Christ. He was the one who would declare that the Messiah was coming. And we know on that wonderful day, uh, after he had already baptized Christ, after Christ had been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, Christ then walks in the vicinity of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, with the greatest declaration that he has ever made in his life, looks to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John's message was one of repentance. Now, if that's not good enough for us, what if the incarnate Son of God, God in flesh, the eternal Logos, what if while He was on earth, His message was repent? Well, that's what we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, Luke 5, 31-32 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You, you see, we can already just feel the intensity of this message that they are proclaiming. It is one of repentance. John the Baptist is proclaiming that message, and Jesus himself is claiming that message. We also see that the disciples are going to claim that message as well. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 12, it says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over all, over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. You will see that it is an important theme. It is an important message that is being thrust here into these verses. John the Baptist, Jesus and his disciples. You'll see that in the book of Acts, many places. It is one of a message of repentance. It's oddly today that we don't find that message being presented very often, do we? I mean, look how people are called to come to Christ today. What is, what is the method? What is the wordage that is used? Well, I can tell you a lot of the techniques and a lot of the strategies that are being used in churches and by Christians today, if you go to the, to the, to the Gospels and you go to the book of Acts and you go to the epistles, it's not even close to what they were doing. Today, it's Jesus loves you unconditionally. He needs you so bad. Come and do, come and make this wonderful decision. He'll give you everything you want. I saw a sign as I was coming through town today that said, come and see and don't miss out on what the Holy Spirit can do for you. 
This is the message that we call people to in the modern church. Do you know what the message was of the disciples and John the Baptist and Jesus and the, and the people in the book of Acts? Repent and believe. Believe in this gospel. Turn from your way. Repent and believe. We don't find that very often today. And there lies the problem. What is repentance? Well, many of you have heard us talk about this before. This comes into the Greek language with the word metanoia, which means changes one's mind. However, this is far more than just an intellectual change of mind. We know that it has to get to the heart because there are people that intellectually believe in Jesus that are not Christians, that are not born again, that have not repented. Some examples that come to mind are demons. The book of James tells us that. Well, I believe that he existed. Great. You are on the same plane filled as demons. What else do you got? That doesn't do us much good. We know that Judas understood who he was. That did not do him what was, did not do him any good. And there was no repentance in his life. Repentance is not just, I'm going to change my mind on a few things, but it goes deeper. It is accompanied by physical actions of change that demonstrate this true change. And here's the thing about repentance. It can only be accomplished through the working of the Holy Spirit. There cannot be repentance without the Holy Spirit. There can't be conviction of sin without the Holy Spirit, let alone call to repentance. True repentance is sorrow and remorse over the weight and the dread of sin against the Holy God. True repentance produces brokenness over sin, acknowledges that one has no righteousness of themselves, which produces belief in Christ and His righteousness only as our only hope. Repentance produces turning to Christ, desiring forgiveness of sins and obedience to Him and His commands. True repentance produces a turning from what God has forbidden and prohibited to turning to those things which He commands. And it's the Holy Spirit that changes the mind of the unregenerate person to see the truth and the urgency of sorrow and repentance towards God. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work to bring about repentance. And again, we keep coming back to this. We mentioned this on Sunday night. We want to spend a lot of time here. But there are two types of repentance that we need to look at. Attrition and contrition. You know, the point of repeating this over and over again is to where we can just say this without even thinking about it. Where we can just pull it out if we are ever in a conversation. It is by repetition to which these things come. So that's why we don't apologize for repetition because... We're in, the, we're in the book of John chapter 6. And tell me John chapter 6 hasn't been filled with repetitious statements. It has been. Because sometimes we need to get it in our minds. The first type of repentance is attrition. It is an insincere repentance. It is a counterfeit repentance. It is a result of the fear of punishment or a displeasure with oneself. Oh, I'm disappointed in myself. Oh, I don't want to have this punishment. This is the, uh, uh, the example we always use, uh, the kid that gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar. This is not true repentance. This is not sorrowful repentance. And what we'll find out here is you could literally be pouring your eyes out with tears and sorrow for yourself and it truly not be repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-10 through 10 says this, I now rejoice, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So he makes a distinction. Not just sorrowful, but sorrowful to the point of repentance. 
For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a distinction. It's more than just being sorrowful for yourself, disappointed in yourself, or not wanting the punishment that comes with your actions. That is a worldly repentance, and that surely leads to death. And we even see example of this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. Speaking of Esau, it says that there will be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Don't think he wasn't sad. He knew what he did. Selling that birthright was of ultimate seriousness, and he was just crying and pleading and sorrowful for losing that birthright. Do you know what he wasn't sorrowful for? Any sin against the holy God. You see, sorrow doesn't just, that doesn't guarantee you repentance. There are people that are pagans, that are unregenerate, that are sorrowful for things they do. But that doesn't truly speak to the true repentance that God is calling us to be and to partake of. But we are to show a repentance that is what we call contrition. And this is a sincere repentance. This is godly repentance. This is a repentance that produces godly sorrow and brokenness because of sin against the holy God. This rep repentance produces a willingness to receive whatever the consequences are because you know that you have sinned against God and whatever he decides to bring upon anyone is right and just. That's how you know you're truly repentant of sin when you can say, God, whatever the punishment is, whatever that you bring upon me, I deserve it. It doesn't matter the punishment. What matters most is that I have disobeyed you. I've sinned against you. And I want to make that the main point of this repentance, not me and getting out of some punishment. Do you see the difference? And maybe you've seen this in your own personal lives. People will tell you they're sorry, but you know they're not sorry. Kids tell you they're sorry. They just don't want to get in trouble. We can all see this, but this comes to a different level when it comes in response and communication to God. This is the repentance that is required at salvation. Right? This is contrition that's required when we place faith in Christ. Remember, He regenerates our soul. What does He do then? He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He changes the inclination of our mind that is in bondage to sin and hates the things of God. And it is in that regeneration that he opens our minds and changes it to see the things that are of him. And then he draws us. And you remember in that drawing, part of the drawing is to, that we are taught of him and we learn from him and we hear from him. And then we come to him. And then we place our faith into him, which is a gift that he gives us. And then that is the moment that we're justified. But you remember that what happens in the Beatitudes, it is in that moment of realizing how broken we are, how bankrupt we are spiritually. You remember these verses, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what comes after that? Blessed are those who mourn. 
It is the understanding by the Spirit of God in regeneration that you and I have sinned and we've sinned against a holy God and our sin is detestable in His eyes and that that leads us to this repentance of contrition to where we know we have no hope without Him and we are sorrowful for our horrible, disgusting, vile sins before the presence of a living God and we cry out in uh, repentance and pray for mercy to which then all that are drawn, he doesn't cast out, but he forgives and he justifies. Again, this repentance is brought about by the Spirit. And this is the the repentance that we are called to. You know, I think about this and I think about what we talk about all the time, false conversions. We've seen them in our churches, haven't we? The music plays so softly. And if you leave tonight, you'll be in hell forever. Is that the chance you want to take? Not. You should repent against your sins, against the holy God. But do you not want to go to hell? Come up here. Say this prayer. There may be even tears associated with that prayer. But if the Holy Spirit has not regenerated that soul, then that's just fake repentance. It's worldly repentance. It's attrition. I don't want to go to hell. So whatever I've got to do in this service to not have to worry about that ever again, I'll do it. Not sorrowful for their sin against the holy God. Worried about themselves and what punishment may lie ahead if they don't do what is being constructed for them to do. Now there are people that are saved that way in true repentance, but there are some that are not. Because when we talk like that, and it's escaping from the from hell as our primary means of coming to Christ, that produces a lot of times an attrition repentance, not one of contrition. Think about when you came to Christ. He regenerated your heart. And what did you know? How broken you were before Him. How vile your sin was before Him. And how you know that You didn't deserve anything but hell. And if that's what you got, great, but you had to call in repentance because you couldn't stand the thought of your sin being before this holy God. That's repentance. That's what is produced. It's produced only by a heart that's been regenerate because any other repentance produces death. Let's look at some of these verses on repentance required for salvation. It's in the gospel message. That's why Jesus could say, repent. That's why John the Baptist could say, repent. That is why the disciples could say, repent. And that's why we can stand up in the world today. The gospel hasn't changed. The call for repentance hasn't changed. It may not get preached a lot. There's some churches where that doesn't ever, that word, they wouldn't even know what it meant. The word repentance has not been in some churches in decades. But you know what? It's still commanded in Scripture. And I will tell you this, a church that does not preach repentance is a church that does not have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in that place because the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and repentance. And if you hear how good you are and not a call for repentance, that's not a church. That's a gathering of professing Christians. It has to be preached. It has to be taught. Let's go through some of these. Luke chapter 13, verse 3. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And then we come to Luke 15, these parables that we know. Look what it says. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to him. If you remember what we've talked about, do you remember who the most, just the vile scum of the earth, the lowest of the low uh, that the Jews considered to be? It was the tax collectors. They were the traitors. Now, look at how this fits in this context. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to listen to him. Pharisees didn't like that. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on its shoulders, rejoicing. And when he goes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. He's speaking this to the Pharisees. They think they're self-righteous. And he's telling them that these people that you think are the scum of the earth, if they come in repentance, guess what? There's more rejoicing in heaven over them who you think you're so righteous that you don't need repentance. Well, don't worry. I didn't come for you. And he goes on to say, this or what woman if she has 10 silver coins and loses one does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for i have found the coin which i had lost in the same way i tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over one sin who repents you want to get rejoicing going on in heaven it's brought about by repentance let me just say one small note on that. These sheep that are lost, the shepherd finds them. He goes after them. He picks them up. He carries them home. I'm thinking about a verse we had mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says this. Let me find it really quickly. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Do you remember what is so unique about that verse? Is that word returned is in the passive. That means that the sheep are acted upon by an outside force. They turn because it's brought about by the sovereign hand of God to turn them and to bring them. You will find the sheep were roaming and had no clue what to do. They had no desire to go to the shepherd, but the shepherd came seeking the sheep. And the shepherd found the sheep and brought the sheep home. And you'll find that in that there is mention of repentance. This is what is at stake tonight. It's true repentance. You realize that if you have not experienced a contrite repentance before a holy God, then there has not been a conversion in your soul. It has to be there. There has to be repentance, and it has to be a contrite repentance before a living God for there to be justification and salvation. Repent or you perish. Repent and believe. Repent. They're all together. It is not negotiable. It is a necessity. Luke 24, verses 46 through 47, he has just explained to his disciples that the Old Testament is pointing to him. And on the heels of that, it says this, 
And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Dare we do a controversial verse to some? Yes, we shall. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, speaking of the elect here, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And do you know what will happen to all the elect of God, all that the Father has given to the Son? Do you know what happens to every one of them? They come to repentance. It's non-negotiable. It is part of the gospel message. Matthew chapter 3, verses eight, verse 8. We'll come back to this a little later too. It says, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're going to find out that repentance is not just a one-time thing, but it's the lifestyle of the Christian. It's not just, well, I repented. I'm a Christian. All is well. The true mark of a Christian is a life bearing fruit in keeping with repentance in daily, if need be, repentance before a holy God. Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. So King Agrippa, here's Paul standing before King Agrippa. It says, I do not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Again, true repentance will be marked by a change of mind, a change of heart, and a turning towards God that is produced by the Holy Spirit. That in return will produce a life that bears the fruit of repentance. That's why he says you can know them by their fruit. Because you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is a perseverance of the saints. It is the one who is in Christ, abides in Christ, will continue to be repentant of their sin and continue to produce fruit of sanctification that shows that they are truly repentant of heart. It's an ongoing process. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. These are terrifying verses to some, but they give us great pause to think and know that not everybody who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who says the sinner's prayer that's not in the Bible anywhere is a Christian. Sinner's prayer is not in there. Repent and believe is. That's a great sinner's prayer to start with. But not everybody that says that is a Christian. Not everybody that comes to an altar and cries is a Christian. It doesn't mean that there's been true repentance of contrition. They could be worldly repentance. But we will know them by the fruits in keeping with true repentance. And this is what we find in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. You may be aware of these verses, but it's good to put them into context with repentance. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Again, remember we talked about 
when we talked about abiding with Christ on Sunday night. He is the vine and we are the branches and we have to be connected with him. We have to be in him. And without him, we can do nothing. And if you're not connected to the vine, you're not abiding to the vine. You're not producing the fruit of repentance. What does he say the end result of that would be? Thrown into the fire and burned. Again, repentance produces change. Repentance is shown by the fruit of a one's life. As it's once said, it says that we are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. It is to be the mark of a Christian. Look what he says then. He goes on to say, you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, be careful there of the to the repetitive Lord, Lord. We know that if a word is repeated twice, it brings of importance. It brings of intimacy in a personal nature. And now we have people that are going to say, well, Lord, Lord, calling out in an intimate way. Weren't I yours? Didn't I do this? But we're going to see that not everyone who says that is a Christian. And not everyone who professes they've repented is a true Christian. And not every repentance is the same. It has to be one of contrition. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's been no change. There's been no repentance. Because if there were, the fruit would show it. We are to keep bearing fruit to show that we are keeping with repentance. You see, it's vital. True, repent, true salvation comes with true repentance. And true repentance is not done out of your flesh. True repentance is done by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what repentance is? It's a gift. Repentance is a gift from God. He gives us the gift of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He gives us the gift of faith. He gives the gift to believe. He gives us grace and mercy. Those are all gifts from God that we do not deserve. And you know what else we don't deserve? For Him to grant us repentance. Repentance is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. It is a result of one being born again. And that comes by the sovereign hand of God. If you have been brought to true contrition and repentance, know this, that did not produce in your fallen flesh. Couldn't happen. But if you've been repentant before God, know that that's a gift from Him. When's the last time you thank God for the gift of repentance, for granting you the, the understanding and the ability to come and repent? So many times we stray away from it. It's not a glamorous thing in the Christian life, repentance. Well, if you're a Christian, you came to repentance because of the mercy of Christ and Him granting you that. And if you're a Christian today, we are called to continue in repentance and thank God every second of the day that He allows us to be convicted of sin and call out to Him in repentance because that is not done by the unbeliever. That is not done by the unregenerate heart. That is only done by the mercy of God. It is a gift. And repentance and faith, they're linked. They're linked together. We find uh, one great example here in Acts chapter 20, verses 21 through 
20 through 21, it says this, Paul speaking to the group there. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, you won't come and put faith in Christ until you realize you're broken over sin and you need to repent. That's when you call out to him in mercy. That's when you call out to him in faith for your only means of salvation. That only occurs when you've been broken to the core in repentance, which is granted by God. And we know that this is a gift from God. We were just here on Sunday night. We've, we've referenced this verse multiple times, but let's look at it again now as we're speaking just solely on repentance and that being a gift from God that he has to grant. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, if perhaps, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift from God. It's granted by God. It is from God. We thank Him for eternal life. We thank Him for grace. We thank Him for mercy. We thank Him for forgiveness. What about we start thanking Him for conviction of sin and the ability to come and repent? Because that's what it is. It's a gift. And it hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Doesn't it hurt to come and be broken over sin? It's not fun. It hurts. It's difficult. But what is on the outside, uh, the other side of that repentance? True forgiveness. That's the only time you can have the comfort of knowing what you've done wrong is been taken care of is when it's been forgiven by God. That's when you can have true relief from guilt. But we are to repent and know that it's a gift from God. If you're a Christian and you've repented, you've been broken over sin, you've called out to Him, you've mourned over sin, you should praise God tonight because that came from God. He granted that to you and He didn't have to, but He did. We are to thank God for His granting us repentance. And we see that we talked about that we should not have a repentance that gets us out of hell. That shouldn't be the primary means of repentance. It should be directed to the heart of God, the nature of God, disobedience to Him. That's where repentance focuses on. But we also see that repentance is required to avoid the wrath that is to come. We have verses here that show us this. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, standing on Mars Hill, speaking to these men of Athens, he says this in verse 30 and verse 31. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And then we find a verse that those who believe that God is love and only love don't really ever like to mention. But let's go to Psalm chapter 7 to see that God is not only a God of love, but he is a God of wrath vengeance, and justice. And why can he be that? Because he's holy. Look what Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 through 13 says, God is a righteous judge and a judge who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. 
He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That sounds like a God who means business. That doesn't sound like a God who says, I love you all the same. And just know that you really don't have to change anything about your sinful lifestyle because you're all my children and, and I love you and you know that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says if a man doesn't repent, he's going to sharpen his sword. He's going to have his bow ready. It's bent and his arrows are fiery shafts. I heard Spurgeon quote it one time and he says, when God pulls back the arrow and he sets the target on the heart, he never misses. He never misses. But what's at the heart of this? If a man does not repent, it is vital at salvation. This is the message that so far has been. It is a call to repentance. It is not a prayer. It just alone, accompanied uh, by no repentance. It's not repeating this, raising a hand this. It requires true, godly, contrition, repentance. Only brought about by the Holy Spirit. It is only the one whom the Father has given to the Son will, that will engage and act in this contrition. This is a God who demands repentance. And here's something interesting that I thought was something worthwhile to mention. We talked about it. We're going to talk about Luther a little bit on Sunday. But we know that we do not celebrate Halloween. We celebrate 95 Thesis Day is what we call it at our house, where in 1517 on the castle door of Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door. 95 items on that. Does anybody know what the first item was? Surely you've looked at it. Surely you just don't. Well, let's read what the first one was. Number one item on Martin Luther's 95 thesis he nailed to the door. First item says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Item one. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's the first thing that he made the list and he put on there was that the life of a Christian is not to be just one of repentance at the moment of salvation when we call out to Christ, but it is a continual lifelong process of the Christian. And now, October 31st, when we think about the thesis he put on there, it'll mean a little bit different now. I want you to always remember that item number one is a call for the Christian to live a life of continual repentance under the holy gaze of our holy, perfect God. It's not a one-time thing and we're done, which leads me to my next question that I've wrestled with recently so I can... Let you wrestle with it too. When is the last time you were broken on your face in true repentance before the holy God? And you say, well, why'd I do that? Why would I have to do you telling me you've not sinned? Great, because you've just lied and been guilty of pride. When's the last time you have wept yourself to sleep? Couldn't sleep couldn't think about anything else. Truly 
repentant, heartbroken, mourning over your sin before a holy God. Have you sinned today? Have you sinned yesterday? You sinned within this week? What is our posture? What's our response to sin? I know what it is to me a lot of times. And I bet if you're honest, it would be the same to you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Give me the strength not to do it again. Seriously? That's not repentance. We ought to be broken over sin. It is to be a continual thing for the Christian. The reason that we do not mourn over sin, I believe, comes down to a couple things. Number one, we don't know who God is. You say, well, it's just one sin. Tell Adam that. Tell all mankind that. Do you know why that there are deaths overseas right now as we speak? Sin came into the world and sin brought death. Why do people die of old age? Sin came into the world and that brought death. The wages of sin is death. It's not just a little sin. The sin is what took our Savior to the cross, took the incarnate Son of God, leaving the glories of heaven to come and die to set us free from that penalty. You see, this is a challenge tonight. You want to talk about the signs of a, a strong church. We can talk about our love for the Word of God. That's vital. It has to be. We can talk about the faithful attendance of those who come and the dedication. I love that. That's wonderful. We could talk about the outreach in the community. All those things are good. But do you know what I believe that one of the true signs of a church is? A group of people who live a continuous lifestyle of repentance before the Holy God. Mourn over sin. Broken over sin. Sorrowful over the sin in their life. Can you imagine what would happen if a group of people called the church would be broken over their sin before a holy God and sanctification and righteousness would be their primary focus in life? Everything else would follow suit. Prayer life, it's a vital habit to get into. It's a vital necessity. Prayer life, reading the Bible. But you know what else I do believe that we should also be involved in our daily life? Repentance. Martin Luther seemed to know that. And when you come back Sunday and you find out what Martin Luther's view of one sin was before a holy God, it'll make a little bit more sense to you. Because if we all had the weight of sin that Martin Luther had before a holy God, our lives would be changed too. It's required through the Christian life. We see this in 1 John 1, 8 through 9, continuing on through chapter 2, 1 through 2. It says, if we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word, his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
And then interesting here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 through 21, Paul has instructed these people in the Corinthian church that he has, he has rebuked them and he's told them of their sin. He has visited them before. He's written to them and he has told them of their sin. And now look at his response of what his response would be if he comes and finds people that has not repented of the sins that has been clearly laid out before their eyes. He says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to not be what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they've practiced. Paul says, listen, I'm an apostle. I've got this authority. And I'm telling you, this is what the Word of God says. And you need to repent. And if I come and you still haven't repented, then I'm going to feel the shame of that. And you know what? In a sense, that's true. When we sin, we sin before God and God alone. But you know what? If someone falls into a, a deep sin or some sin is known... We feel that as a church too. It reflects on the church body. Let us never do anything to bring shame to God, shame to our family, shame to the church body that we hold to. He would bring shame on Paul if he's telling them to repent and they don't. They've not repented and it affects Paul should affect us all. If we have brothers and sisters that we know are in sin and we brought it to their attention in the biblical way and they don't, it should break our souls. We are to be holy people striving to be conformed to the image of God to which we've been predestined to do and we are to live a life of repentance before God. I want to read something really quickly before we start. to. I have some quotes here at the end I want to share with you. But if you will, turn in your Bible to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer of true repentance by David. You want to see the heart of a broken man? You want to see the heart of a man who's truly contrite before God? You're going to hear it here. We know what David did. We know his sin with Bathsheba and, and all the things that escalated as a result of that. And now, if you're in the NASB Bible, right under Psalm 51, you will see a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. And listen to this. What you will find is He's not concerned about the judgment that comes upon him because whatever comes upon him, he knows he's guilty of. But what he wants to know is his God has forgiven him. Listen to this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you have made me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltless, guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, other, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. So what are you pleased with? The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is a prayer of contrition. David wanted God. David knew he sinned against God. All he wanted to be was to be restored, to have fellowship with God, and not just, well, forgive me for this time for sin, and then maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it again later, maybe I won't. What do you say? Wash me from it. Wash me from it. Purify me from it. Don't ever... Let me do this again. Let it be removed from me as far as it can be removed. I don't ever want to do this again. And oh, by the way, once you do this, let me teach others your ways that there is mercy to be found in you. And contrition is what leads to salvation. Do you see the difference in that? And say this prayer, I don't want to go to hell. But that's also what we do in our Christian life if we're not careful. Maybe you've been guilty of this. You save your prayer to the very end of the day. And your eyes are getting so heavy. And it ends up being like this. Lord, forgive me for everything I've done wrong today. Amen. It seems cheap to me. Because I've done it and I know. We've got to stop the thought of one sin and mourn over it. You see, that's impossible. You may be right, but it's still what we're called to do. To be mournful over sin, to be repentant before a holy God. Listen to these quotes on repentance. Some are by Calvin, some are by Spurgeon. But I think they're very good, so listen. Calvin says this, Repentance is true, a true conversion of your life to God, proceeding from a sincere and serious fear of God and consisting in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and the vivification of the Spirit. Spurgeon really grabs our attention with this. 
repentance and faith are distasteful to the unregenerate. They would sooner repeat a thousand formal prayers than shed a solitary tear of true repentance. Wow. That's a true statement, isn't it? Why would the unregenerate hate repentance? Because repentance is a gift from God. Spurgeon also goes on to say, there is no repentance where a man can talk lightly of sin, much less where he can speak tenderly and loving of it. How many sins do we have in our life? We know things we struggle with, and we're fine with just letting them hang around. He says there's no repentance when you can take the sin and just kind of talk lightly to it, let alone love all on it. Calvin says true repentance is firm and constant. A man and makes us war with the evil that is in us, not for a day or a week, but without end and without intermission. No breaks, no half times, no recess. It is a constant thing of repentance for our sin before a holy God. And the exercise of repentance ought to be interrupted throughout our whole, ought to be uninterrupted throughout our whole life. Think about it tonight as we end with this last little bit. I want you to think about it. What does your life of repentance look like? Our life and level of repentance shows us what we think about God and what we think about sin. And I got to be honest with you, this is one thing I think lacks in most churches alone in each individual's life. We are to repent. And it'd be a continuous thing. Not just the salvation. And let me say this. If a church does not preach repentance, then the Holy Spirit is not backing that message because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Again, this is where we thank God as a gift that He's given us. Because the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin and break you to the point of repentance. And when you do that, you know that the Holy Spirit is in work within you. We should thank God for it. Repentance is a necessity to a Christian. Repentance is a necessity to be preached in church. And repentance is a necessity in our sanctification and to be conformed to the image of God. That is what we're called to do. It is sanctification. And your sanctification will progress as much as your life of repentance. Because sanctification is being conformed to His image and growing in holiness. And that's hard to do when there's little repentance in our life when we know the sin is present. So tonight, here's the challenge. Let us contemplate and reflect on the holiness of God. The God that around the throne they cry, holy, holy, holy. That God, let us... Reflect on His holiness, and in return, let us reflect on the sin that we commit and what can be called none other than idolatrous rebellion against His holy commands. And the more we understand how holy, how pure, and how much He despises sin, the more we will detest sin in our lives. It will mourn over sin, which is what the Beatitude says is the attribute of a Christian. And not only will we mourn over sin with all urgency, we will feel the weight of it and repent. 
Repentance is a gift granted by God that leads to faith in Christ and salvation. However, repentance is ongoing as we grow in sanctification and holiness and will continue until we are pure in heart. This will be an ongoing process until we are free from the presence of sin for the first time in our eternal home. And you know when we're free from the presence of sin and we're pure in heart, what is the beatific vision that we're promised? We shall see Him as He is. The reason you can't see Him is not because you have bad eyes. It's because we have a heart that's not completely free of sin. We still sin. And one day when all the presence of sin is removed... We'll see him as he is. And this is why it ties in with the message on Sunday, because even though we sin, even though we're still sinners, we're still covered by the mercy of God. Even though we are simultaneously just and righteous before God in justification, we still sin. And it is in that sin that we still have before a God that's justified us that should make us run and fall down in repentance to never displease him for all he's done for us and who he is. One day, our eternal home, we will not have to repent any longer. But until then, let us be individuals and let us be a church that our life is marked with repentance. And in this, we will grow in sanctification. And we know that 1 Thessalonians tells us that sanctification is the will of God. So I pray that tonight we take this word repentance and it consumes our mind. Consumes us. Not just once at salvation. Not just once or twice here and there. But let that be the mark of a true Christian. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight you break us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we know, Lord, we can, we can hide from every person. We can, we can think that no one knows, but Lord, you know the sin in our life. You know the things that we deal with, the things we struggle with, the things that no one knows, Father. And Lord, let us not for another second compromise with that sin, justify that sin, Lord, but let us, more than we ever have in our entire life, feel tonight the weight of sin against you. The holy God. Father, you came and died on our behalf. You took upon you the sin of all your people. It took you to redeem us, to pay the price for these sins. Father, let us never take it lightly. Lord, we thank you that you've justified us. You've covered us by your righteousness, but you still tell us to grow in holiness and to grow in sanctification and to mourn over sin and to confess and repent. Lord, because that's what pleases you as we're growing in your image. So, Father, I pray tonight that myself and everyone else in this building tonight would begin to feel the weight of sin and, Lord, feel the call to a life, a life of repentance until one day we don't have to repent anymore because we are eternally with you and free 
from the presence of sin. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that you've promised us that those who mourn will be comforted. And let us be comforted with these words tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.